Go ahead and grab your Bibles and open up to uh, Romans chapter 15. And um, as you turn in there, um, I, I want to let you know that I bring you greetings from uh, the church in Romania, and um, um, they, they, they express their gratitude and their love for you, um, and uh, they're really, really thankful that, that you are willing to send um, both me and Rowan there to do some ministry with them. Uh, Rowan and I got back earlier this week. We had such a sweet time with the church there. We were so blessed, so encouraged. Some of you don't know, um, I was there uh, with Rowan, and we were doing a, a, a church-wide retreat. So the church that we helped plant there in Yash, they invited us to come, and, um, and they, they did a church-wide retreat, and uh, I was able to do five sessions with them. We were able to spend a lot of quality time with them, have a lot of great conversations just to hear what God has been doing in their church and through their church. And it was just honestly so encouraging, so encouraging. Both Rowan and I, uh, I think, repeatedly said as we were there, man, this, this feels like home. These people feel like our people. In fact, um, we, I think you would fit right in there. They'd fit right in here with us. The culture of the church, very similar. The way they think, the way they operate, the people are so sweet. And um, we, we actually drove. We, we arrived there, we, a long kind of series of flights to get there, and then we drove for eight hours from the city of Yash to get to the, where we're doing the retreat. So I actually said to the people, like, they, I was so encouraged, and 90% of their church went to this, this retreat eight hours away from their homes. And I said, if you are willing to drive this far, you might as well just get on a plane and come to Canada next time. <laughs> and they said they would if we would pay for it. So we were really blessed by our time. And, and I'm gonna sh- we're going to share a little bit more with you about what's going on in Romania um, at the, the annual vision meeting this week. I hope you're planning on coming to that. It's going to be a really sweet time um, together. One of the greatest joys that we... we experienced in being there was seeing the unity in the church. And uh, we had lots of conversations with some of their key leaders, the pastor, the elders, and it's interesting, one of the, the dominant conversations you have with other leaders in the church seems to be around unity, it seems to be around dealing with difficult people, difficult situations, things that can destroy the unity. And we had a number of those kind of conversations, and we're thinking, we're praying, we're encouraging and providing some counsel. But it's very clear that they're a church that's been fighting for unity, and, and it, was, it was encouraging to me because I, I think um, for many of us, the unity that we experience in the church is something that we can often take for granted. It's not something that you really appreciate until you experience some disunity. It's not something that you value, that you, you really praise God for until you see how quickly it can be disrupted. And as we got to spend some time with them there, we saw that they were we're fighting for unity, and, and it was very clear they understood that fighting for unity is hard, and losing unity is easy. It's really easy to lose unity. It's really easy to get distracted. And in the household of God, the church, we can fight for many things. We can fight over many things, but the most important thing we must be willing to fight for is unity. Unity is precious to God. And Paul has spent an entire chapter in chapter 14 of the book of Romans 
laying out a case for how we fight for unity in the church, and he's going to continue to unfold that in chapter 15 as we look at verses 1 all the way through verse 13. This is such a massive section of Scripture, so many words given to this topic, and it should remind us of how important unity is in the body of Christ. We've looked at, as we've studied through this little mini-series in fighting for unity, we've looked at first our attitudes. We've talked about how our actions can either create unity or destroy unity. And this afternoon, I want to look at our aim, our aim. And our aim, as we fight for unity, is the glory of God. That's what our unity has the potential to put on display. Paul writes in chapter 15, verse 1, he says this, "'We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me.'" For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people." And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol Him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even He who arises to rule the Gentiles. In Him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. It's very clear as you read through this section that Paul has one primary goal, one chief aim, and that is the glory of God. Everything that we fight for in the church is about the glory of God, and perhaps nothing else in the church shows forth, displays the power and the glory of God more than the unity of the church of Jesus Christ. So, Paul wants to call us to embrace this aim, our aim in all of our disagreements, in all of our uh, fighting and quarreling in the family of God, in all of it, our aim is this, we need to strive to glorify God. And in order to cultivate that aim, we see that Paul lays out five things for us to consider. Five things for us to consider. First, God has given us a people to please. Verse 1 and 2, it's very clear. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. It's so obvious. Look at verse 2. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. 
So he shapes our perspective by telling us how we're supposed to operate in the family of God. And the call here is to please others, not ourselves. And I want you to notice that this call is directed primarily to those he calls the strong. Now, we've looked at these the passages before this in chapter 14, and we see that Paul has laid out two, two categories of people in the family of God. There's the strong and the weak. And in this case, what he's trying to describe are, are strong people. That is, people who have a broader, uh, more biblical understandings of their freedoms in Christ. The weak are, are those who are likely coming out of a Jewish background who don't quite understand the freedom they have in Christ, and so they're still practicing certain customs and traditions that align more with the Jewish faith, they can't really get it out of their system. And so, here Paul is addressing these two groups, and now he focuses his attention on the strong, and he tells the strong, those who who get, get more of what the Bible actually says about their freedom in Christ, he says this to them. He says, listen, your obligation is not primarily to exercise your freedom. Your obligation is actually towards the weak. Your obligation is not to please yourself by exercising your freedom. That's not, that's not the, the primary goal in the kingdom of God, eating and drinking and doing whatever you're free to do in Christ. That's not, that's not your primary obligation. Your primary, primary obligation as a follower of Christ is actually to please other people. Now, the weak are not exempt from accepting the strong But you need to see here that the greater burden is on those who would be considered the strong. In God's household, strength implies obligation. But I want you to see this, strength does not always indicate maturity. Sometimes people get confused. They think because they they understand more of the Bible, they get more of what the Bible says and and practically what it's supposed to mean for their life, that somehow that means they're more spiritually mature. But that's not always the case, and the evidence is in this passage. You see, the strong can be incredibly immature with the freedoms they have in Christ. An unwillingness to forego our rights for others indicates, listen, that even though we may be right, we're actually wrong. We're selfish, proud, and immature. The strong must bear with the failings of the weak. And here's why this is so hard when we hear something like this, because we know from this passage and the ones in chapter 14 that the strong are actually objectively right. They're the ones who have the right understanding of the Bible. And Paul does not want the weak here to remain weak forever. That's why this is challenging. So you have the strong who are actually right in what they believe, what they know to be true, and he knows that the weak can't stay weak. This is helpful. Some of you may be a little weaker in your understanding of Scriptures. You may not know the freedoms that you have in Christ. And one of the things you need to hear, as much as this is addressed to the strong, what the weak need to hear is this, God is not to content to leave you in your weakness. He doesn't want you to stay spiritually weak. He wants you to have a fuller, more robust understanding of the Word of God. He wants your oversensitive consciences to be realigned to the truth of God's Word. But the strong, you have a part to play in this. 
He doesn't say that you, you just have to tolerate them. He certainly doesn't say that you get to ignore them. But he also says you need to be careful that you're not becoming so self-centered, so self-focused, that your supreme desire is to please yourself. You see, the weak will change only through loving and patient instruction. Some of us are, are strong in this room. By the way, that's, that's not a bad thing. Paul identifies himself as being strong. Some of us in here, we know what we believe. We know why we believe it. We have some very clear understandings of the Scriptures, but we need to hear this. Some of us in this room are wrong in how we handle the areas in which we are right. And if that's what you're inclined to do, then you're actually wrong. You're wrong because you're sinning against your brother and sister in Christ. You're wrong because you're trampling on their consciences. You're you're wrong because you may be forcing them to do things that their conscience is not allowing them to do. By the way, it's worth noting that it is the desire to please self that causes most of the problems in our lives, okay? This 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 one's for free. This is one of the most important lessons you can learn in your life, in your marriage, in your home. If you're a kid with your siblings, we have this conversation all the time in our home, right? The source of all of your fights, do you realize this? All the tension you experience in your relationships, every fight you have in your home, whether it's with a sibling, whether it's with a parent, whether it's with a spouse, I don't care who it is, it all boils down to your sinful, selfish desires. Do you realize that? That's James chapter 4. Why do you fight and quarrel? You ever ask that question of yourself? Why, why do we fight and quarrel? And then you come up with some dumb excuse or dumb reason. The biblical answer is this. You have sinful desires that are at war within you. And when you don't get what you want, you want to know what you do? You, you, you murder, you hate, you fight, you hurt. And by the way, you, you don't have what you, you want because you don't ask. And when you do ask, you don't ask with the right motives. This is what James says. You see, you, you ask for selfish reasons. Just, just the next time you get into a fight with somebody, just pause and repent to both God and them and say, I'm sorry, I'm being so selfish. I'll tell you, right now you'll resolve so many issues in your life if you just see how selfish your heart really is. The tendency that you have to drift into this self-centered, selfish kind of thinking We strive to promote or preserve our own interests. But again, look at the aim here. Instead of seeking to please ourselves, look at what the Christian is called to do. Let each of us please his neighbor, and look at the reason, for his good to build him up. For his good to build him up. The strong have an obligation to help strengthen the weak, to do what's in their best interest, to help them flourish and thrive. We are an others-oriented people, and that's so contrary to the world around us, which is one of the reasons why we stick out in this world. I I don't know if any of you have heard the name um, Eliud Kipchoge. Probably not. He's He's a runner. Uh, he's, he's one of the, the greatest, he is the greatest marathoner ever to have uh, lived and raced. He's still competing today. And in 2019, 2019, he actually set out to break the world record for the marathon. And, and it's one of those, those standards, you know, like, like the, uh, the four-minute mile, 
You know, like 100 years ago, the four-minute mile, nobody thought anybody was going to break the four-minute mile until Roger Bannister did it. And, and in 2019, the, the benchmark was, can, can somebody possibly get under the two-hour mark for the marathon? Which is just a staggering, a staggering speed. And, and this guy, he actually broke the world record in 2019. He ran uh, one hour, 59 minutes, and 40 seconds. Isn't that incredible? Like, it's just ridiculous speed. Roger Bannister, he broke the four-minute mile. He ran 3.59. Um, this guy ran 26 miles. Each mile, the average pace was four minutes and 35 seconds. But here's what you might not know. In order to do this, it took a team of 43 other professional runners. 43 of the world's best runners, most elite runners. And they, they cycled in and out, pacing this guy in order to help him maintain his pace, you know, kind of cut through the wind, protect him from the elements. And you see what I'm saying to you? He, he wasn't able to succeed and flourish and cross that threshold without the help of a whole team of people who were in it for him, who were willing to sacrifice their own glory, their own pride, their own interests for the interest of another. And this is the exact picture that we have in the Bible for followers of Jesus Christ. As a family, we are in it not to please ourselves. We're in it for the good of others, for what helps them. And next he gives us a pattern to follow. And this is fascinating. In verses 3 and 4, he does something that he hasn't done yet in this letter. He holds up the example of Christ to enforce his argument. One commentator put it like this. He said, Paul seems to take a doctrinal sledgehammer to crack a behavioral nut. He, he's, he's, you know, he's, he's just pointing out, he's like, it seems disproportionate. Why would you pull out a sledgehammer to crack a nut? But here's what you're not seeing. What, what you need to see is that what he's saying is this. Paul believes the unity of the church is so important. He has waited and waited. He could have brought the gospel in in its full force and, and a number of times before this, but he waits to this very moment to uphold Jesus Christ and the cross of Jesus Christ as the supreme example for what it looks like to sacrifice everything everything in order to serve others. Isn't that awesome? Here's what he says, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. To say that Christ did not please Himself is one of the greatest understatements of the Bible. Though Christ, listen, existed in indescribable glory from all eternity and was always rejoicing in the fellowship of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect unity, in perfect holiness, in perfect joy, He left all of that for the sake of lost humanity. In John 6:38 Jesus says, "For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me." And here what he does is he quotes from Psalm 69 verse 9. It's one of the most often quoted psalms in the New Testament, and he holds it up to show us that the psalmist was actually speaking of Jesus. 
that that psalm was ultimately pointing us to the reproach that Jesus Himself would suffer. All of the the hatred and the ugliness of human hostility toward God fell upon Him. He's pointing us right to the cross, and He's reminding us of what exactly was taking place. As Jesus hung on the cross, He was was there because of humanity's reproach of God, their hatred of God. You say, well, humanity doesn't really hate God. I'll tell you this. Um, Humanity loves the gods they create in their own image. That's the God that humanity loves. But humanity, apart from the grace of God, hates the God of the Scriptures. They hate the God who says, as Paul has been laying out in Romans, they hate the God who says, you are a, a, a wicked, evil sinner. They hate that God. They hate the God who comes alongside and crushes their self-esteem, who says that you, you can do nothing of any spiritual value, that you are so far from being good, that you have, you, you're not deserving of God's grace, that you deserve hell, and you deserve God's wrath for all eternity. They hate that God, and they hate the God that says, you can't do anything, I need to do it for you, because listen, humanity loves, they love the praise of man, they love to be responsible for their own salvation. Most people in the world have concocted an idea of God that allows them, listen, that allows them to climb their way to God so that they get to be the hero of the story. But Jesus says this, at the cross, what we see is that the reproach, all that hatred of the true God of the Bible, it falls on Jesus. He takes it all. And what Paul is saying is the next time that you're struggling to give up something in order to serve others, the next time you feel that tension in your heart where you're like, I just, ah, oh, I don't, I, they don't deserve it. What about, what about what I want to do? What about, what about what's best for me and my time and my schedule and my life? The next time you feel that tension in your heart, you know what Paul says to do? He says, I want you to pause and I want you to look at Jesus. I want you to look at the cross. This is, listen, this is eminently practical right now, okay? This is one of the the most practical things you can do in your life is learn to preach the gospel to your own heart. In the moment you're faced with this temptation, the greatest thing you can do to, to radically alter your behavior, to change the direction of a conversation, to change the direction of your life is to look at the cross and to see here is the supreme example of one who did not come to please himself, though he deserved to do it for himself. Just look at the cross. I mean, it's, it's, it's just, the more you think about the cross, the more staggering it is. He endured mockery and mis... This is the God of the universe. This is mind-blowing. The God who spoke creation into existence, who lived in eternal glory, He comes down, wraps Himself in flesh, and then He endures the mockery, the slander, the abuse, and the scorn of the very people He came to save. And when you think about that, you know, we used to wear, I used to have one of these bracelets. Anybody else? Please tell me I'm not alone. Um, in high school, WWJD. Remember those bracelets? I had one of those, okay? Wasn't ashamed. It was red. I loved it. And as Christians, we often want to think, like, what would Jesus do in this situation? Which is not bad, by the way, but you want to know what we need to get better at? 
we need a WDJD. What did Jesus do? You see, because all of our behavior, all of our actions, they're reoriented and adjusted as we think about what Jesus has already done for us. And that, that's what allows us to begin to live, to, to begin to live the way Jesus actually lived, to do what He did. Jesus denied Himself and, and suffered for His people even when He could have called down a legion of angels. The church father, John Christosom, said he, he possessed the power not to suffer what He did suffer. He gave up all of Himself in order to serve all of us when none of us deserved anything from Him. And Paul says to us, listen, he says, that's the pattern. That's the pattern for you. That's how you're supposed to live your life. And so when we think about all of our, our minor sacrifices, our small inconveniences in light of the cross, it's kind of like going to a spiritual chiropractor. It's intended to take everything that's kind of out of joint and to realign it all so that we can now begin to live like Jesus. You know, at the end of our service, we're not there yet, so don't get your hopes up. <laughs> Thought I'd qualify. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And I, I came across this quote that's just been stirring in my mind all week that relates to this passage and to the Lord's Supper. Here's what this author wrote. He said this, Could the whip and the nails and the weight of all our sin please any man? Whenever we crush the bread of communion between our teeth and swallow the cup of His blood, we cannot escape the fact that He did not please Himself. Every time, every time we, we hold this in our hands, every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, every time we sing the gospel, every time we hear the gospel, we are being reminded Jesus chose not to please Himself. And He did it in order to serve us. He did it for our good. And for Paul, the fact that Christ did not please Himself has everything to do with our deferring to one another for the sake of Christian unity. And look at how he refers to the Old Testament Scriptures here to strengthen his point in verse 4. Again, he's just quoted from the Old Testament, and he's, he's wanting us to see that all of the Bible is telling us the same thing. All of the Bible presents to us the same pattern because all of the Bible is pointing us to Jesus. It says, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And he's teaching us here some things about how we are supposed to read the Scriptures. And what he's referring to is the Old Testament primarily. And so, so I think there's just a really few quick points I want to make to help us understand how to read the Old Testament, okay? First, I want you to see this, that, that Paul has a Christocentric view of Scripture, okay? In Paul's mind... Everything is pointing to Jesus, and it's fulfilled in Jesus. Every part of the Scripture. This is what Jesus said in Luke chapter 24. It's all pointing to Him, and it's primarily, listen, a lot of the texts about Jesus, the coming Messiah, are pointing to the reality of His own suffering and then glory. I want you to see this too. Paul's pointing out that there's a, a, he has a comprehensive view of Scripture. Whatever was written, in other words, all of it has ultimate value that's found in Jesus Christ. All of it is for our good. 
All of it serves a purpose. And notice this lastly, he has a constructive view of Scripture. In, in other words, it has value for us today. Today, as we read the Old Testament Scriptures, it has value for us because it keeps pointing us to Jesus. It keeps perpetuating the patterns that we are supposed to embody in our lives. The Scriptures give us encouragement, and they help us endure in hope. They remind us that this has always been the way of the people of God. You will always struggle to follow the pattern of Jesus, by the way, if you struggle to immerse yourself in the Word of God. Okay? Let me say that again. You will always struggle to follow the pattern of Jesus if you always struggle to immerse yourself in the Word of God. It's been rightly said that sin will keep you from this book, or this book will keep you from sin. And you just need to hear what Paul is doing. He's telling us, listen, he's implying for us that one of the keys to living the Christian life faithfully is to faithfully immerse yourself in this book. Study this book. Know this book. Digest this book. Live this book. How desperately we need to hear that because how quickly, listen, we can set this book aside, right? How quickly we can let it gather dust on our nightstand, how quickly we can turn to lesser things that consume our time and consume our lives. Get in this book. Let it spur you on as it points you to Jesus who sacrificed all for us. Next, in our aim to glorify God, He gives us a prayer to embody. Look at verses 5 and 6. He's praying here, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The endurance and the encouragement that comes from reading the Old Testament, from reading the Scriptures, from identifying the, the ministry example of Christ and serving one another gives this to the church a spirit of unity. And when the spirit of unity is at work in the church, you want to know where you see it most? The church speaks with one heart and mouth to give glory to God. The church embodies this mission, this chief aim. Their supreme desire is to say, we live for the glory of God. We sing for the glory of God. We serve for the glory of God. The prayer here is not that we would agree on everything, but that we would have our eyes fixed on the same thing. And we're going to disagree on a lot of things in this room. There's a lot of diversity represented in this room, a lot of diverse backgrounds, a lot of diverse opinions and beliefs, a lot of diverse convictions on, on secondary or minor things. And remember, what he's been dealing with are disputable matters, issues that are not of primary importance, issues that don't you know, speak to somebody's orthodoxy or somebody's salvation. They're just issues that Christians can disagree on and can work together. And he says, listen, as we disagree all the time, the greater thing we need to fix our eyes upon is what we agree most on. That's what's going to bind us together. That's what's going to keep us moving forward. If we miss this church, we will derail. We will have mission drift. We need to have minds and hearts not fixed on what's wrong or on where we disagree as believers, but minds that are fixed upon the Lord as we follow Jesus Christ together. 
See, Paul is telling us that Jesus is our source of unity. He's the source of our endurance. He's the source of our encouragement. Christian unity is simply a corporate response to what Jesus has done for all of us. That's why, isn't that awesome? We can come in these doors, and even where we may disagree with one another, when we sing these songs, don't, don't you love hearing the unity of our voices? And, and when you hear the unity of our voices, do you want to know what that's supposed to remind you of? The unity that we all share, despite our diversity, the unity that we share in Christ Jesus, we believe the same thing about Jesus Christ. We believe He is Lord of all. We believe there's no other way of salvation other than Jesus Christ and Him alone. It is by grace through faith in Christ. Amen? And we celebrate that. And when we stay there, when we fix our gaze on that, man, the strength of the church the momentum of the church, the power of the church. But you know, it's really easy to slip into critique mode in the church, isn't it? Some of us are better at this than, than, than others. It's very easy, especially if you're coming from another church context, to say, oh man, I, I wish they did it like this. Oh man, I... Why don't they have this ministry? Why do, they, why do they have these expectations? Why do they do it like, you know, it's, it's very easy to get into to kind of just into this critique mode. And most of us, sadly, listen, by nature, are nitpickers. We just are. We're complainers and criticizers. Now, just listen, as a qualifier, there is a place for healthy, loving criticism in the church. Of course we want to grow. Of course we want to do better and we want to minister better. But, but listen, Criticizing is not a spiritual gift, okay? It's just not. Criticism tends to destroy unity and distract from our aim. You're like, okay, maybe, maybe you're saying, you're like, okay, I, I'm the critical person. I just, I wrestle with being critical all the time, and I'm right about a lot of things. <laughs> People need to know. say, what do I do? What Paul tells you here is take your, take your eyes off of the areas that you want to criticize and put your eyes back on Jesus. That's what he says. I know, it's so simple, isn't it? It's so simple, but it's, it's hard. It's really hard. This is what Paul says over and over again in the Scriptures, be of the same mind. He doesn't say you've got to agree on everything. You know what he says? He says, be of the same mind, love Jesus, glorify Jesus, strive to honor Jesus. And if that's your attitude, if that's your mindset, it's not going to matter what you disagree on and all these little tertiary things. It's not going to matter. It's not going to matter at all. And in verse 6, Paul expresses this deep desire for unity in our praise. I mean, he's, he's calling, he's praying for a unified worship our worship will not be what it is meant to be without unity. Do you realize that? It is, not, it is not pleasing to God when we are not unified. We can come and sing all the right words. We can sing even with the right volume. We can clap our hands and raise our hands. We can close our eyes. We can have tears coming down our face. But if we don't have unity in the family of God, our praise is not acceptable and pleasing to the Lord. It's not. It's hypocritical. I mean, think about an, an orchestra where each instrument is playing in its own key. Every instrument is, is making a noise, but it is far from beautiful. It is far from pleasing to the ear. And the beauty in our praise comes from a unity 
where we're all playing or singing in the same spiritual key, and the spiritual key is this desire to glorify God in every area of our lives, especially in our relationships with one another. John Calvin said the unity of his servants is so much esteemed by God that he will not have his glory sounded forth amidst discords and contentions. It's like Psalm 133, how beautiful is our worship when we we worship together in unity. Our unity is, is more than just about our own good. It is always about God's glory which is why in the Sermon on the Mount, this is why we have passages like, like when you come into the, the house of God and you bring a gift to the altar, but you know your brother has something against you, what does he say? You know what he says? Leave your gift at the altar, go and be reconciled to your brother, and then come back and offer me your worship. You see what he's saying? Your heart matters. Your unity matters. Uh, Jesus, Jesus died to unify a people, and so where we will foster contention and discord, he's saying you can't worship like that. You're not allowed. And some of us need to hear this today because, listen, some of us have fractured relationships. In a room this size, some of us have actually got fractured relationships with one another in this room. Some of you have been harboring bitterness and resentment Some of you have hurt other people in this room, and it's never been fully reconciled. And you've been letting it linger and sit for days, weeks, months, maybe some of you years or even decades, and God is saying, like, enough is enough. You want to please me? You want to bring glory to me? You're my child. Are you a child of God, church? You want to please God, church? You want to bring glory to Him? Then be quick to reconcile with one another. Be quick. As much, Paul already said this in Romans chapter 12, as much as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Sometimes you're going to get to a place where you've done everything you can. But listen, get to the place where you've done everything you can. It's so pleasing to God, the unity in the church, which is why in our aim to glorify Him, God gives us a promise to proclaim. We need to see this. Verses 7 through 12 he picks this up and he says in verse 7, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. God has welcomed us with open arms. He's been so gracious to us. We need to embody that same gospel heart for others. And then he says in verse 8, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. You see, when the strong and the weak welcome each other despite their differences, they not only follow the example of Christ, but they actually play, think about this, church, they play play a practical role in the fulfillment of God's promises to the nations. He's saying something so profound here. When incompatible people welcome one another and love one another sincerely, they prove that God is doing what He promised He would do. The church is a walking billboard for the power of God, for the truthfulness of God, to to display that our God is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. You see, long ago, God made a promise to Abraham 
And he promised Abraham, in effect, that he would restore all of humanity to himself. He would begin with the nation of Israel, and Israel would have a a role to play amongst the nations. They were supposed to shine forth the glory of God, to display him to the nations. And the purpose for that was that all through the, the seed of Abraham, through Israel, and then through Christ, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That God would gather from every tribe and nation and tongue people that would, that would sing forth His praise, that would live for His glory. God is showing in the church, listen, by uniting people who are naturally not compatible with each other, that He alone is able to fix what is wrong with this world. He's going to fix all the broken relationships. He's going to fix the devastating consequences of the curse of sin. He's going to restore it all. He's going to recreate it all. He's going to reunite it all. You see, he's saying the church in the plan of God is actually displaying to the world the cosmic purposes and goal of God to restore all creation to himself. Yes, amen. This is what we get to be a part of, church. So so our unity is not just like, well, great, can't we all just get along? It's going to make life easier for us. It's not the point, although that's good. The point is so much bigger than that. The point is we're, we're saying something to the world. Listen, this is where hope is found. You need to be reconciled to the God who's one day going to re- reunite and reconcile all things to himself. And he's starting with people. And he's, he's picking people from the Jews and the Gentiles. Every tribe, nation, and, and language is able to now come streaming to the throne of grace. And he quotes from, from four passages in the Old Testament the law, the prophets, and the writings. He's, he's trying to show us all of the scriptures are pointing us to the same wonderful, mind-blowing reality. God has said, it's always been my plan that the entire world, every, every person he saves from every tribe and nation gives him glory because of his mercy. Therefore, he quotes from the Old Testament here, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. You know, come, you can hear the gathering, the welcome of God. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. And then all the peoples extol him. And then again in Isaiah, the root of Jesse will come. We know who the root of Jesse is, don't we, church? Jesus Christ will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. He's pointed to this beautiful reality that there is a Messiah, a king who will one day rule the earth to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen, church? That day's coming. And our job, church, our aim is to glorify God by rallying the nations to come. Come now, find hope. All these quotations make the point that the only hope for a broken world is to be reunited under God's King, Jesus Christ. The rule of Jesus will extend across the globe, and it will be the praise of all the people. And the church is to proclaim this promise of the final worldwide rule of Christ. And church, the way we proclaim this is by bowing together and fighting for harmony and unity that all the world might see and believe, that they would rejoice, praise, sing, extol, because they too have found hope in Him.
our unity has massive implications. Massive implications. It's about our mission. Our mission as a church, we've always said it like this, right? We want to see lost people saved, saved people matured, matured people multiplied. Here's the best part of all and the most important, right? Come on, say it with me, church. All to the glory of God. That's the most important part. Everything we do for the glory of God. And lastly, in order to do this, listen, because we cannot do this in our own strength, look at what he does. He gives us finally a power to employ. I love verse 13. It's another prayer. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. You see, we can do this by the power of Jesus. The God of hope must fill us so that the power of the Holy Spirit can work in and through us. And if God is calling us to change something in our lives for the sake of Christian unity, the answer is I can't do it. The answer isn't I can't do it, I won't do it. The answer is I must do it, and I can do it through Him who strengthens me. We have a hope that is designed to abound in us. We have a a hope that is unshakable, church, that gives us joy and peace because we have believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We know the one who has conquered sin and death. We know the one who took our punishment in our place. We know the one who found us when we had no peace, we had no joy, when we were without God and without hope in this world. He found us, and He made us alive in Christ Jesus. He set our foot upon the rock. He gave us bread from heaven. He gave us living water. He dwells within us and has promised that He will never leave us or forsake us, that He will be with us even to the end of the age. He has told us that He is coming again for us, for in our Father's house there are many, many rooms. And through our unity, our living in harmony as a church, the hope of God's rescue in Christ This is the awesome news, church. It will overflow to a needy and desperate world. Do you have hope today? Jesus died so that you would have hope and that that hope would be abounding, overflowing. But you only find hope when you come to the end of yourself. When you recognize that apart from Him, you can actually do nothing that you cannot save yourself, that you cannot fix yourself, you cannot redeem yourself. And as a result, you, you throw yourself at the mercy of His grace. And everything you previously turned to in order to find some semblance of joy, of peace, some, some temporary taste of hope, all of that has to be cast aside in order to find the source of all joy of all peace and all hope in order to find God Himself. You see, God is the origin and the object of our hope. In other words, to become a Christian, or if you are a Christian, in order to move forward in the Christian life, you you must abandon false hope. So what false hope are you holding on to today? What's that thing that you keep running back to? If I only had blank, I would be happy. If I only had blank, my life would be complete. If I only had blank, I would truly be at peace and I'd be satisfied. Whatever it is you fill in that blank with, listen, that's the thing that you need to abandon this very day to find true and lasting peace, joy, and hope in your life every day. 
And the way you do that is by confessing your sin and repenting. And if you would turn to Jesus Christ today, maybe for the first time, you can find this hope of new and eternal life. And the power of the Holy Spirit will begin to abound in you. When was the last time you as a Christian asked for this? Let me ask you that. When was the last time you asked for this to to be abounding in hope? Today we would do well to come and to pray and to be filled with hope. Listen, where we can disagree and divide over such small things, Paul brings us into the heavenlies to show us the grand plan of God, to take people from every tribe tongue and nation to unite them together. And in the meantime, He's given us the presence of His Spirit within us to give us this hope. So, so let's ask together today, church. We're going to celebrate communion right now in just, in just a moment. But the prayer that I think, I, I think God is driving into our hearts is this, do you want to abound in hope? Pray that you would abound in hope. Pray that you would be so filled with hope that it would overflow into the world around you.